The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live, except that Kate, who is supposed to be there with the cast of Night Court, uh, forgot her scotch and has uh, gone off to get scotch. It is. I'm back with the, I, Evelyn just emailed me. She needs the link. So maybe I'll email it to, uh, it's not to working both apparently. Of them. It is Monday, April 13th, 2020. Boris Johnson has resumed his duties as prime minister. Kate Klonick has not shaved her head. We are not allowed to have fun anymore, especially not with razors. Um, <laughs> but in lieu of fun, uh, here we are. And here is our first guest, Evelyn Dweck. Um, and let's rapture her into the conversation. There she is. Look how much hair she has. Evelyn, uh, you got to turn on your, yeah, there you go. are. I, don't worry, Ben, I'm a Zoom expert now. I'm basically living on this thing, so. Evelyn also still has hair. Yes, um, just, I'm mere days away, I think. Well, um, so you both have uh, more hair than I do, um, uh, which is, I'm not sure that's the standard by which these things are measured, but <laughs> more hair on this show than Noah Feldman does because he doesn't have any hair on this that's show. That's right. Not being on the show. Yes, but right. once he gets here, he's going to put us all to shame. Noah has notoriously good hair. People talked about it when he testified in Congress. Yeah, he uh, he's he had a he had a good hair day, but he actually he has a he has good hair in general. So Evelyn, who also has good hair, despite her evident desire to remove it, um, uh, welcome to In Lieu of Fun. And um, before Do you have a drink, Evelyn. There you go. Before we get started, how are you spending your time? How are you holding up? <laughs> ben, it's embarrassingly, it's embarrassing how little has changed. Um, the, <laughs> the life of a doctoral student is, is, is very well suited to self-isolation and self-quarantine. Um, so yeah, doing, doing much the same, uh, just the classes are here in my lounge room now rather than across the road at the law school, so. Are you finding it very tedious? Classes like via Zoom? It's actually surprisingly okay. Um, yeah, it works works reasonably well. There's all of these petitions out now. Like I am getting, like our students have a petition, like all of these about like basically wanting their money back because they didn't oh, pay really? to get taught via Zoom. And I'm like, is it that much worse? Like, I mean, like, I don't want to do it all the time, but it is a case of kind of emergency. Yeah. Like, right? Like I, yeah. I also I mean, don't I think, at, I also don't think it's, uh, you know, I have all these services, um, that aren't allowed to come to my house now or I'm not allowed to engage with, I'm not asking for their money, but my yeah. money back. I mean, like what, what I, like, it's not like 
like St. John's law schools or Harvard law schools, but like they are following state law and municipal ordinances, right? They're not allowed to have gatherings like classes. What is even the issue to discuss? I do feel bad for the LLM students that are sitting in Sydney and doing classes at like 3 a.m. in the morning or 7 a.m. in the morning, though, to be fair, that is not a pleasant experience. So <laughs> that I, I agree with that. And to be fair, uh, I know a, a woman who uh, uh, went to Uruguay for her study abroad uh, and then things got canceled in Uruguay. So she is sitting at home in Maryland studying abroad remotely in Uruguay, which seems like the, the like that some actually seems like the saddest of all possible worlds. <laughs> like your your Cultural study at version, home you know? is remote. Your study abroad is remote. And you're doing it from home. Yeah. The other um, thing that I think is really interesting is it's surfacing this issue of it's surfacing this issue of like um, of what do you pay for for your education. Like, are you paying for the actual learning in classes? I mean, like, that's the idealized version. Or are you paying for a degree? And if you can, like, get one or the, you know, or the other, um, even though we don't want to think about it as paying for a degree, because obviously we have grades and everything else. Uh, but I think that it's, I think it's kind of an interesting question um, of like, you know, people are like, we're not getting the quality of education that we wanted. Um, I'm like, but you're also going to graduate, like. Like everything has become like credit, no credit, right? Most things have. It's an interesting problem because it's not like the universities can turn around and say, yes, you're getting exactly the same education because if that were the case, why would they have these elaborate campuses with all these facilities and these, you know, and so they can't actually say that they're giving the same product uh, now, the, the, the right answer, it seems to me, is they're doing the best they can under the circumstances given public health exigencies and resulting requirements of law in the jurisdictions in which they exist. Right. I mean, it's definitely not the same. I, I, it's surprisingly good. It's definitely not the same. On the other hand, I don't think it's like so much worse that we should definitely all expose ourselves to coronavirus and the, the potential coronavirus and come back to campus. Like it's it's obviously the right decision. I do worry. I think it's 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 better and easier when it was like in the middle of semester, you already had a classroom vibe and everyone knew each other and things like that. And then um, then they were doing it remotely. I think it's going to be a lot harder and more difficult when and if, I think when probably, uh, we don't have any physical classes starting in the fall and you have to start from scratch uh, via remote learning. So we are still waiting for Noah, but why don't we get started since time is limited and, um, and uh, uh, we will rapture him in as soon as he is, uh, shows up. Um, I texted him, but we'll see what he says, but we can start talking. I mean- Go I for it. Give- yeah, I'll just give this brief, the brief, briefest of intros. And then honestly, it'll be fun to just have me and Evelyn. I don't think we've ever kind of done this publicly, just the two of us where we've gotten to talk about this. And I don't think, I mean, Noah's wonderful, but he's kind of consulted much more. Um, he's consult, he's been, he's been consulting with them about this. Uh, whereas I think Evelyn and I have just been following it from various levels of proximity to the actual team at Facebook doing this. Okay, so but uh, for, for those for those who are complete novices to this subject, 
what is the Facebook Oversight Board that you guys have been following? Yeah. So in um, for like for a number of years, for about since Facebook started in 2004, basically until it wasn't until 2008 that they kind of started to develop formalized rules uh, for which they take down users' content um, around uh, around um, what they decide to post and whether or not it's against their community standards or not. For a number of years, there were kind of two sets of rules, a public-facing kind of very high-level don't say bad things type of rule. And then behind the scenes were all of these kind of um, intricate, uh, intricate, uh, very, very detailed lists of exceptions and what we say, what's okay and what's not, like breastfeeding is okay, but the child has to be actively breastfeeding, has to be, the child has to look like they can't walk by themselves. The child has to, you can't see any areola. Like the child cannot be asleep on the mother's chest post breastfeeding, like et cetera, et cetera. All of these kind of very fine grain rules, just to give an example about some of the stuff they would remove. And there is this, um, you know, and for years, one of the things that civil society groups and academics kind of were pushing for was more transparency and accountability around the process, not only the process um, of making these rules, but how they were enforced and about creating a way for users on the platform to basically, um, file an appeal or protest against something that they didn't think was an accurate reflection of what they wanted or when they thought something was unfair against them or unfair censorship. Um, so this kind of reached ahead in like 2017, Cambridge Analytica, the Napalm Girl incident, there's like a whole bunch of things that I won't get into right now, but it kind of started to come into the public eye, this idea of content moderation and how much power these platforms were wielding. Um, and in November 2018, um, well, actually, as she's in January 2018, Noah Feldman um, kind of wrote a memo to um, Mark Zuckerberg uh, proposing like a Supreme Court for Facebook, which would basically allow, um, which would allow people users to have a source of appeal um, if Facebook removed their content and they thought that it was an error. Um, and so this was you know, something that had been thought about for a while and was percolating, but um, Noah was definitely a catalyst for kind of like coming to fruition and getting attention within um, within Facebook. He, you know, he has a lot of clout. He has a lot of uh, connections. He's like a well-known like constitutional law scholar. Um, and so he kind of was well-positioned to be this external guide on this um, and kind of what they needed at the time. And by November, 2018, Zuckerberg had announced that they were going to start um, uh, a Facebook's oversight board or the Supreme Court of Facebook, which they don't like it when you call it that. Um, <laughs> and the Facebook oversight board was going to be set up within the year. Spoiler alert, it was has not been set up within the year, uh, obviously, because it's now if you're keeping track of your calendars, it is now about four months, five months past. Uh, when I am should... not keeping track of my calendar. I have no I idea. know, right? I can't even remember if it's like, I don't know what day today is. I think it's th Tuesday, but I have no idea. Um, so like, um, in any event, um, uh, they did the first six months of 2019 was a global consultancy period where they went all over the world holding workshops getting feedback on what people wanted the oversight board to be and what they wanted to look like. Then they started drafting founding documents to set that up. Um, and when I say they, it was a small team, about 10, 10 to 12 full-time team members called the governance team that had about 10 uh, or about 100 
cross-function members employed across the company. They were all working on this. And um, basically the only thing, they've released all the documents now. Uh, Evelyn has diligently, have you written about all of them as each of them has come out? Pretty much. Sure, on Lawfare, yeah. We wrote about, we wrote about the, the, we wrote together on Lawfare about the report, I think. And then after that, you wrote about, you've written great stuff about the charter, the trust documents and the bylaws. Um, and yeah, so here we are, all we're waiting for on at this point is to know who's going to be on the board. This global, um, imagined it between 11 members and 40 members group of that will hear appeals um, from removed content at the start um, and uh, potentially um, other types of content later. Um, and yeah, and so I've, I've been, I've been embedded with the oversight board team, like the governance team at Facebook, uh, since May of 2019. So almost a year now, uh, doing kind of doing research and following them as they do all of this. Um, Evelyn and I have been in a number of meetings together that they've held for outside stakeholders around this. Um, and Noah has been consulting like as a very much an interested party, like not as I would, not as disinterested, I would say as like kind of Evelyn and I as like someone who's an advocate for the board and is helping Facebook put it together. So Evelyn, um, how did you get into this? Um, <laughs> I listen to a lot of podcasts and Mark Zuckerberg. How ma- what speed do you listen to them at Evelyn? Uh, I'm up to three times speed at the moment. <laughs> so, <Whoa>. Real problem. <laughs> we must seem like painfully slow to you right now. <laughs> I think we should all talk like this. <laughs> you seem really intelligent, Ben, on rational security, because it's like, I don't know how you come up with those witticisms so quickly. Oh, um, my name is Wittis. Yeah, <laughs> that'll do it. Uh, so Mark Zuckerberg first uh, floated the idea of the Supreme Court publicly uh, on a Vox podcast with Ezra Klein, and I just thought it was super interesting and um, chucked a post about it up on Lawfare uh, and sort of since then have just been been tracking it um, as part of and, and as part of my uh, doctoral studies. Although it's funny, I was telling someone the story the other day about how when I first started my dissertation, um, someone told me the story about all of these physicists that were doing a dissertation on the um, Hadron Collider, the CERN Hadron Collider, and then it broke down for like two years and they were all left not being able to finish their degree. And I've been feeling a little bit like that with the oversight board. You're uh, oh. in a while when it's like, we're, we're, we're blowing out on the timeline and I need it to, to, to get stood up. <laughs> Well, so I can, I know some of the people now that are on did, it. It seems like it's actually going to happen. It. What? So how did you get into it, uh, uh, Kate? Um, I, well, we've talked about this article before, but I wrote an article about content moderation, like the internal processes at uh, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, but predominantly focused on Facebook. And it was kind of well-received both inside the tech companies and like who felt kind of, I think a little bit grateful that somebody had like taken the time to really process and report out without kind of a bent um, what they were doing. Uh, It was a very descriptive straightforward paper. And then um, I think that when, because like, just like, so I was kind of doing this before the oversight board kind of came along and I was just following all of the breakouts pretty much all of the time about content moderation. Um, And some were 
pushing towards things that I wasn't as interested in. Um, uh, like, I don't know, I don't know how I could ever do any type of empirical work around like the algorithms that make up newsfeed. Like that seems very, very difficult to me. Um, I don't think that Facebook necessarily knows how those things are done or could accurately tell you necessarily all the time. They might know more than, I don't know, but like, this was one of the things that I was super interested in. So um, yeah, and then basically I just asked my contact at Facebook uh, that I, uh, you know, uh, that I said I basically was, um, I write, I've written for the New Yorker before and I said, I have this New Yorker piece um, that I pitched to them and they said yes to, uh, do you wanna let me follow you around and report this out? And they said, sure. Um, so that's how that happened. All right, I have a pretty basic question for you both about this, which is, is this actually a good idea? Or is ju this just another layer of bureaucracy that we're putting in to do content moderation that's in fact, um, either going to be a classic regulatory capture situation, which is, you know, whatever, whatever Facebook's judgments, they're not so unreasonable that, you know, a board that gets steeped in the culture of the place isn't going to basically find them reasonable. And so now instead of um, having, you know, some anonymous people at Facebook saying, you know, you're toast, you have anonymous people at Facebook and then you get to ask like the luminaries, the, you know, uh, uh, former UN General Assembly chairs and gray beards and gray hairs. And they'll say, yes, yes, Facebook has been reasonable here. And it'll have kind of patina of uh, international legitimacy. But it will basically be another Facebook uh, uh, layer of self-approval you go first evelyn <laughs> like this is a basic question here's the like fundamental question about this body is it good um i don't know we're gonna have to wait and see uh there was a there was a lot packed in there you know you raised like the the potential independence of the board members i mean obviously that's a key issue um and i think a lot of that's going to depend on how it works in practice and, and things like that so we're going to have to wait and see uh you raised the idea of whether it's actually going to make substantively better decisions and i mean i don't even know what that means uh, i don't either speech decisions like they're always going to be contested and, and contestable and i don't think we're ever going to be like oh these people said it and that's obviously the right answer so i don't think that that's if that's your metric then uh everyone's going to be sorely disappointed um i think so what i think it has i think it has two two like core promises that 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 it can do first of all it can be like a bit of a forcing function for policy development uh in a way that currently it's sort of everything's very reactive whereas if this board is given more substantive jurisdiction people can proactively bring things uh to the fore in a way that uh they currently can't we, we rely a lot on journalists and the media and sort of public big big iconic public moments to really uh to make make issues get on the agenda um, and the other thing I think is like more productive and centered um, conversation about it uh, in, a, in a way that hopefully will provide some sort of uh, 
contestation and, and legitimacy. Um, I think that, you know, at the moment, whenever there's any sort of controversy, uh, we have, it's, it launches like a thousand opinion pieces across all the major media organizations. And I think that's great. And I think that's really important. That's a really useful conversation, but there's no sort of like centering function or, or way of making sure that people are really discussing uh, the same things or looking at the same sides of issues in a way that hopefully maybe this board can make the public conversation about those issues a bit more, uh, a bit more centered and productive. What do you think, Kate? What's the what's the reasonable metric of success for a board like this? Yeah, no, that's a. I mean, it is that. It's actually it's so difficult. All of the things that Evelyn said. I've I'm always as we've talked about Ben. I'm like kind of an optimist about this. I go through in my paper and just finished it, which is just as I've mentioned, is like just a long list of all of the ways that this falls short and all of the things that they could have done more, all of the ways, for example, that Facebook still holds the reins um, in deciding their subject matter jurisdiction, deciding what can come before the board, deciding the powers the users can have, deciding how they use the board and when they can insert themselves like and force the board to, to like take one of their questions. Um, the financial independence of the board. Um, I was I just presented the paper in Jack Balkan's class and he brought up this one thing that I hadn't really considered, which was that, uh, that if you have a group of people that even though it's six years until like they talk about the possibility of renewal for the, like the, the money, the $130 million that Facebook has given as an irrevocable grant to this board, that uh, you need that it's burned through in six years. And so people are going to become dependent on this board, especially the staff members that work on it for their livelihood. And that there is going to be some type of like financial, like financial, depend, uh, financial dependence, not directly because it's not like one-to-one, -one, like someone on the board makes a bad decision and Facebook kicks them off or something like that. And they lose their job immediately. But if the board as a whole is not making decisions that are favorable to Facebook or Facebook doesn't like after six years, it could just like cut it loose, right? On the, on the other hand, it could be that the, the more unfavorable decisions it makes and the more Facebook complies with those unfavorable decisions, the better the optics get for Facebook. So it's one of these, one of these situations where every, every bad decision is terrible in the short term or bad in the short term, but the accumulation of bad decisions actually creates the perception of accountability and, and, and commitment to this. And I think that if Noah was here, that's kind of the pitch that they made to the board of directors in like February, which is basically like this idea that when the board was like, we're not giving up, we're not, even though it's a very small grant of power that they seeded, ended up like seeding jurisdiction to the board over, um, that there is that it is actually an investment in the long-term rebuilding of trust that Facebook badly needs to happen if they're going to maintain their long-term economic viability of people. I mean, every so short of a pandemic, like forcing everyone to be on their computers all the time and talk to their loved ones, there was going, you know, there had been this um, trickle away from Facebook in kind of the global north um in western europe and in in the us a growth in the global south but they needed to build up the this was an answer to that kind of question for users i think it is a small but potentially huge chink in the armor like i really i think that like it could just be a tiny chink 
it could just be like that one scale that is like missing on like the dragon's belly, right? But it could also be like a crack in a sidewalk that fills with water and then turns to ice and breaks the whole sidewalk apart. Like it's kind of hard to know like which it's going to be, I think. And I think a lot of that's going to be how how robustly the board decides to really push the limits of this. And that kind of depends on who is on the board and like the quality of people and just how like ambitious they are in what they want to turn this board into, which I think is going to be interesting. All right. So um, since you guys know a great deal about this show, uh, this subject, and Noah is turning into among his many other distinctions, he is only uh, 37 minutes away from becoming the first person ever to stand up in lieu of fun. I know, so sad. And that, like, you know, know, that's gonna be like big on his CV. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly, (laughs) Um, be in his bio. Literally, um, he's so, been called the Benedict Cumberbatch of like of like U.S. like elector of like impeachment politics. So I feel whom? like we have. I mean, this is going to take a serious like serious <laughs> cut into that. Yeah. All right. So like Noah's time is ticking down, but in the meantime, you can ask questions about the Facebook Oversight Board to Kate Klonick and Evelyn Dueck. Um, you know how to do it. If you're a Zoom bomber, you can leave an obscene message in our Q&A and we will remove you from the face of the planet. If you are a normal person who has a question, leave a sensible teaser of your question and we will rapture you into the conversation so that you can pose a non-obscene, non-abusive question uh, to uh, our people. Um, In the meantime, can I ask Evelyn uh, some questions? Cause I'm yeah, dying. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Cause I, I also just like, I've just been steeped in this and Evelyn, I was kind of running around reporting all these things, talking to people and Evelyn was being diligent and reading all of the documents. Um, and I got through the documents, Evelyn, all at once kind of compa- referencing in between and like going back and forth and working through them all, the founding documents. And one of the things that I discovered among other things, is that uh, the amendment section of the bylaws does not allow face does not basically um, envision uh, face like the oversight board being able to lead the amendment section. And you think you wrote it written about this? Um, so there was that. And the other thing that I spent a lot of time looking at was the removal part of the board members. And there is, as far as I can tell, there is like actually no contemplated procedure. Uh, or reporting mechanisms uh, that are consistent throughout that state what has to happen before the board decides to vote a member to be removed, what the vote has to be in order to vote them to be removed, and how a trustee is notified to remove them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so I don't know if those are drafting errors or those are, are, which I would hate, you know, Poor Heather. I don't want to like blame Heather for that, but like, but like, it also is just like I'm really curious to uh, to see if like what your thoughts are. Do you think they're drafting errors? Do you think that those were like purposeful things? Like, when you were reading them, did you have a lot of thoughts like that? You're like, are they leaving this open on purpose, or like, do they just not know what they're doing? Because whoever knows what they're doing when they're making founding documents. 
Yeah, so I mean, those are both two things that I definitely, uh, that I flagged as well in my post for lawfare on, on this, because I think they're two really fundamental issues. I try not to engage in psychoanalysis of Facebook uh, and its uh, motivations. So I don't know why they did it, whether the ambiguity was on purpose or uh, oversight, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, on the removal power, I, I agree that the thing that I talked about like um, was, I'm not quite sure what the role of the trustee is. That's very unclear to me. The point of the trustee was supposed to be a rubber stamp, but they actually seem to have potentially a fair amount of power to decide whether uh, a board member has uh, breached the code of conduct, which would be okay if the code of conduct was fairly determinate. But it unfortunately includes uh, things like um, disqualification, disqualification on the grounds of morality, which, you know, as we all know, is a, is a very uh, unambiguous uh, standard. I'm to sure. be fair, Evelyn, I think that that's actually like all codes of conduct. <laughs> so I think that there's, it's very hard to kind of like nail, nail down a code of conduct that doesn't come down to subjective determin determinations. Yeah, fair, except that the whole like point of this uh, is to establish independence in a way that a lot of code of conducts aren't like code of, a lot of code of conducts are actually about like establishing allegiance and like, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, yeah, allegiance and loyalty to the organization or whatever, whereas this is supposed to insulate uh, those those members from from influence a bit. So there's that. And also, I mean, on the other one, I think the amendments uh, uh, procedure, not only is it um, that the board doesn't have as much power as I potentially would have liked, but it's also not clear to me how they resolve um, who gets to decide whether a, the amendments procedures have been properly invoked. And I think I said in my post, like, I'm looking forward to the Facebook oversight board version of Marbury and Madison, where, of course, the oversight board says, we have determined that this is how you amend the uh, the bylaws. And, you know, I'm sure that there's going to be an interbranch standoff in that case. So I'm also looking forward to that. We've got lots well, of to that point, I want to point out the part of the, the part of the trust documents that give the trust the power to form new companies. And um, which I think is super interesting um, because a number of people that I interviewed on the team see that as like a crazy Easter egg of potential for the trust to basically create a Senate, to create a representative body, to create something that's more accountable in service of the purpose of the oversight board. And like, if we get, if I, I know one of our, the trustees, like if like there are, if there's some really ambitious trustees, there's, they still need Facebook sign off, but it would look pretty bad if the oversight board came to them and said, we need this type of body of like, stakeholders serve as some type of Senate-like body to give us feedback. And yeah. So sometimes you guys are talking about this as though it's kind of the Supreme Court of Facebook. Yeah. But sometimes like now you're talking about it more as though it's the Congress of Facebook. That is, it's kind of making its own rules. It's kind of deciding, are we a two-chambered body or a one-chamber body? Um, is it even clear it's a Supreme Court versus a trial court versus like, like I think it's like ADR. more like the Department of Motor Vehicles now how like limited <laughs> jurisdiction is that it's been given um but you know we'll see right I mean so the I limited jurisdiction is still going to surface like 900,000 potential appeals a day <laughs> right but 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 I I guess I want to I want to pose the question what is the appropriate analogy for this board? Is it, should we understand it as an adjudicative mechanism with respect to complaints about takedowns? In which case, 
really the proper analysis analogy is some kind of court system or you know adjudicative body or is it more legislative than that i mean the way you guys are talking you know they're talking about like they're going to have to talk about what what rules to create new systems they have and so i i guess i'm 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 hung up on the what is this thing question I mean, I come down to comparing it basically between it's not a Congress, it's not a representative body, and it doesn't try to be. Um, but I basically end up comparing it between a constitutional court and uh, alternative dispute resolution is basically, I think, like a private system of dispute resolution that is created by a private by, by a private entity and kind of cutting between those two. And the reason that I kind of come down to that is because because they're just the there is no there is no legislative function they just don't have that type of power against facebook it's only to check the executive power of facebook if you think about it in terms of three branches of government type of thing they're not drafting anything their policy recommendations as evelyn has talked about are like persuasive and i think they're going to be very persuasive because as I, we've talked about also I think that Facebook really wants us to answer all of their problems for them and make it so that they don't have to deal with a lot of these things. Yeah, I mean, I think the judicial and I, I think, first of all, we shouldn't overstate how this body in, in like the Supreme Court sense in, yes. in any way, like it's Facebook's going to Facebook and this body's going to do some stuff, but it's not going to, you know, I don't, I don't know, we'll see. Um, but I think that the judicial analogy is probably the closest and it's the one I stick to. I think that, um, you know, stuff like the, the policy recommendations and the fact that a lot of its decisions aren't necessarily broadly binding um, make the US Supreme Court analogy look less, uh, less apt. But I, I think if you look at like other constitutional courts and other uh, judicial bodies around the world, um, and in particular ones that have been set up, you know, in, in the um, centuries since the Supreme Court was set up, they, they have a lot of more of this kind of weak form judicial review functions and things that um, that this body has. And so I still think the judicial analogy is probably the closest to sort of, instead of a legislative analogy. It's kind of a check, a retroactive check against um, what Facebook does. To that extent, Evelyn, what do you think about the idea that the board has a kind of a long-term um, like a long-term commitment to checking, not just checking Facebook's power, but there's really no, to speak to a representative body, the board members are chosen. And we can talk again about how, like, as I was going through, I realized that there really is no end, no set end to how Facebook has to let go of control of their role in choosing members. Like if you actually go and look through all of it, they're like, you know, that like, this is likely 40 members. And Facebook will continue to consult with the board to pick members until it reaches full capacity, at which point it will entirely take over. But if you never, if you don't have full capacity as a defined limit or like what that constitutes, like it can go on forever, interestingly. Um, there's, I just kind of really wonder that doesn't serve that representative function. Does it bring any accountability to users? Like, except for their direct appeals? like for their individual instances of speech that get removed from Facebook. Um, they don't have accountability to who's on it. They don't have accountability to like what the rules are. They just have this one form of review. Yeah, I mean, totally. I think uh, like, 
since this body's been announced, everyone's been freaking out about like, can we make sure that this board is super independent and really, really independent? And the, the entire time I've been being like, yeah, but we also need them to be accountable, like in some sense to something. Otherwise, what are these people going to do? They're going to sit there, take their uh, like fancy paycheck from Facebook and flip a coin and go, eh, this party wins. Like there's nothing that makes them, I mean, there is the code of conduct, so they would have to do a little bit better than that. But I think that, um, you know, in, in judicial systems, we have like some sort of sense that there's something legal about the role uh, and that judges have to engage in a certain kind of reasoning and discourse that makes their decision legitimate. And we can definitely have a debate about whether judges even meet that standard sometimes. But in this body, we don't even have those norms and professional sort of accountability and professional norms that uh, typically do that work in judicial systems. So I think that's going to be a really interesting uh, conversation to have. Yeah, yeah. so I, I, I want to ask about that because it seems to me that, you know, like I vacillate between like, this is an impossible job and this job shouldn't be that hard. Um, and I, I, understanding that those two things are in conflict, you know, Facebook's code of conduct and community standards, like they're not, like I, I, I understand that there are edge cases, but it doesn't actually seem that hard when you see the Jewish ritual murder page, which has finally been taken down. Um, uh, but for years, that page was up there. And, uh, you know, I would look at it and say, okay, in a community that does not allow uh, racial hate speech, it's pretty hard to, uh, to justify the continuation of, of this. Uh, page and they finally got enough bad press over enough years that they took down Jewish ritual murder. But um, I guess my question is, is this problem really that hard? That's one side of the question. The other side of the question is humans are infinitely creative. And if you tell them no breast shots, they'll say, what about with the baby breastfeeding? And if you say, yeah, but the breast has to be hidden, they're like, how about the edge of the areola, right? And like, like you, will, you will slice the onion very fine and never have a dispositive answer to any of these questions. And so my question is, is this really a less hard problem than Facebook is making it out to be? Or is it a freaking impossible problem and there's no way to solve it? No, it's a really impossible problem. Can I just jump in and say that? Like, it's a very, very, I mean, this is what we've spent. This is what the courts have spent literally like one or two cases a year trying to decide like the limits of this within the first amendment type of questions or, but any type of speech questions, like they courts just do it much more slowly, but like we've, we've fleshed this out over years and now Facebook's doing it like 10,000 cases a day, at least of really hard questions. Um, that uh, that are not just, I mean, what do you do if someone posts a picture of a person being beheaded, okay? And like, that's obviously graphic violence, but what if it is for, it's a beheading of a reporter in Mexico um, and by the cartels. And it's for, um, it's you're posting it in order to bring awareness of like the, like the, the violence that the cartels are wreaking in like Mexico on journalists. Um, do you not post that? I mean, my one of my favorite examples is, is the Boston Marathon bombing, which is 
there was all of these pictures that were actually being published by newspapers that had gruesome violence in them, like bones sticking out of people's legs as they were wheeled away from like the scene. And Facebook had a rule that was very clear cut based objectively on what was seen in the picture, which is like, if you can see the insides on the outsides, it comes down. And that that was an example of it. And so they said, the person in charge at the time said, we're gonna take it down. We're going to, it's, we obviously have to take it down. And he was overruled by higher ups at Facebook who said, no, this is newsworthy. And he said, you can't have that type of um, exceptionalism just because this is happening in Boston doesn't make this newsworthy. And what happens in Mexico with the cartels, not newsworthy, like every beheading is newsworthy when it's done by some like kind of crazy, like violent faction. Um, and so like, trying to make these lines, I mean, that's like, even I would even think that like those types of graphic violence lines are easier than the lines that are around um, sexually explicit material that's art or sexually explicit material that's expressive versus sexually ex explicit material that is, uh, that is violent towards somebody else or is uh, non-consensual. Like, like there, I just think that these, these, these issues are like, I mean, I mean, famously, um, Anthony Alonis, like rap lyrics, like are rap lyrics, if targeted at someone, like are those, do those make a difference in terms of like, and you know, those, if you're targeting them as someone, do they count as a threat or are you just using lyrics? What if the lyrics are from someone, a rapist, a rap, rap uh, a rap person who's famous versus someone that just makes them up on their own. Do we give more credit to famous people for their speech than we give to everyday people for their speech and the value of their speech? I don't know. All of these questions, I think this puts on at a scale and on blast that we've never, we've never seen before in human history. I think it's an incredibly difficult problem. I agree with all that. And I just want to add one more thing, which is I think Ben, you're example was quite telling um, in that you said, and eventually they got enough bad press and pressure and they took it down. Um, and I mean, in that case, that, that might be an easy case, but ordinarily we don't think of like speech rights necessarily as something that we want to be decided just by commercial pressure or public pressure or majoritarian forces. So uh, potentially the, the, the role of this body can be something along the lines of articulating norms of protection of speech rights that shouldn't just be in a way that shouldn't just be decided by commercial considerations. Right. I just, I just think there's a, so I accepting everything that you both said, I wonder what percentage of the contested takedowns such matters account for. And it seems to me like a huge amount of it is probably more routine stuff that like Jewish ritual murder has a, has a right answer. It's just that whichever uh, content moderation schlub was, was looking at it, didn't understand that, you know, Jewish ritual, the, the blood libels were things that got a huge number of people killed, including relatively recently. And, you know, I, I wonder how much of it is the contested difficult questions that you guys are talking about and how much of it is just that there are like basically right and wrong answers under under the code of conduct to some of these questions but you know having a staff that's actually expert enough to do the content analysis to apply the guidelines and the rules well it, that's actually a tricky judicial function that's not all you know that's that's while if, if you get the right person analyzing it, 
is probably pretty easy, may not actually be easy in practice at scale. I want to get to John's question, but just to kind of double down on what Evelyn said and to wrap it into what Ben said before. One of the things that I also kind of point out in the paper is that as, as Evelyn pointed out so correctly that a lot of this was like when something caught public attention, when something decided to like blow up, there is a tremendous amount of cronyism that dictates how people's face, how people's speech is restored on these platforms. Do you know someone at Instagram? Do you know someone that knows someone at Instagram? Do you know someone that knows someone at Facebook? Do you know someone at EFF that knows someone at Facebook? Like these type, like the civil, how the civil society groups have like diligently and with good purpose to good ends, I think, tried to develop relationships with these platforms specifically for this thing. But like what it means is that it's all like kind of network of influence. And like, that's just not something that's, that doesn't actually bring accountability at scale to any of these things. And at the very, very, very least, I hope that this is, like I said, a chink in the armor towards getting there, because I do think that the way that people get their speech put back up on Facebook traditionally, which has just been, do you know someone at Facebook is just like, not, not a feasible way of continuing to do things. Anyways, John Bordeaux, the floor is yours. Thank you, sir. I, um, a lot of the examples you've mentioned recently are pretty, pretty explicit and they seem kind of black and white to some degree. Um, but I'm still struck with the notion that Facebook is a global firm. And I'm curious what, is the, what the approach is to navigating among all the global norms and ethics and expectations. You know, is, the adjudicated, is the adjudication mechanism guided by some regional expectations, some national expectations, or are we establishing some kind of smooth global standard that's the minimum of uh, whatever one expects for due process? Great question. What do you think? Evelyn, it's all you. You're like, well, you're from Australia, so you know more one, about the other yeah, side of the world one. than me. Or an accent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Australia, that like the most diverse uh, place away from the American experience. Uh, look, I, I think this is such an important question. So, so, so important. So thanks for raising it, John, because I think um, we often uh, don't spend enough time talking about how uh, how important Facebook's impact is uh, globally and in, in many uh, places um, potentially more systemically important than it is um, in, in uh, Western countries. Um, I think that one of the big misconceptions about something like the board uh, is that, that it's going to be a place where we can settle global norms for free speech. I just don't think that's ever going to happen and it's certainly not going to be these random 40 people that Facebook chose um, through some sort of opaque process that can finally fundamentally bring us all together in some kumbaya moment and decide what we think uh, free speech norms should be. So I think that um, absolutely it's, I mean, it will be um, in some sense determined by the board, um, but, and, and we'll see what they do, but I absolutely think that they're going to have to take into account uh, regional considerations and context in the decisions that they make, because how could they possibly not when a speech in one context has such a different meaning than it does in another context. What do you I would think, just, Kate? Yeah, I would just say that like, so um, I really like Robert Post's uh, kind of theories about this, which is the idea that like a community, like you need a community in order to define norms, like social norms and to define, like, which in turn kind of help define rules and, and uh, standards that you have uh, that you define for the community. But the, uh, but the entire, I think that there's something about the community 
uh, as a glo- like a global community, which is just, it's not tenable. Like there's no, uh, there, at least not yet, maybe someday, there is no such thing as a global community. And thus there cannot be like one agreed upon set of social norms. There are regional areas, there are localized areas, you know, people, cultures in India have very different feelings on like two men kissing on Facebook and Facebook decides to keep that up everywhere. Like they don't, they do not decide to make a different set of standards so that India's like sensibilities are met. Right. And so this is part of the, frankly, the American exceptionalism that like that Facebook and some of these other um, platforms labor under. Some people would also say that like, some people would also say, frankly, that like, uh, America is a lot less free speech favoring than the First Amendment, for example, than America, like in general, mostly because they do take down a lot of speech that things like the First Amendment would keep up. So if you were going to, like, for example, uh, pornography um, is is like explicit, like is allowed under the First Amendment, um, but you cannot post various like sexually explicit content on Facebook um, or hate speech, hate speech like Snyder v. Phelps, like totally like legal under the first, not totally, but like to, as long as it's not a threat, like legal under the first amendment and um, not allowed on, on Facebook. And those, so, so there's, there's caveats to it. So, but like in answer to your question, John, if your question was, do they split it up by region? They don't, they have basically one rule that governs everything. They are, or they have one set of rules that governs everything. They have small carve outs of laws that they decide they're going to observe that are like local laws and like local regions that they decide that they would be like held by, that they have pushed back on or decide not to push back on, that they do geo-blocking in those regions for content that is flagged to them as being in violation of those countries' laws. Um, but for the most part, uh, it's just one global set of rules. And this is kind of the crazy, I think, anthropological thing about this entire system, which is like, how long does this go on for where you have one set of types of standards for one, for a global community before you start really actually like, like starting the wheel turning to create a global community that is actually all bound up in these same norms. Like how long do we all have to use Facebook that we don't just like start to like basically just take what they give us and think those are the norms for what we want speech to be wherever we are. Um, and that's, I think, I think that that's kind of a fascinating, fascinating point. All right, uh, Fernanda Gomez, uh, the floor is yours. Hi, thank you. Um, so my question is uh, a little bit like a follow up with uh, Jen's question. Um, so you were already like talking about the different um, rules like all around the world when it comes like to deciding whether or not something can be hate speech or can be uh, prohibited by the uh, local law. So do you think that there is a chance that maybe like the oversight board's uh, decisions like in the future could lead to changing the community rules of Facebook? like maybe to create like some kind of regional laws or maybe like to address like so uh, some problems that by now cannot be like just set inside a box and automatically will uh, lead to an exact result in all the countries. And um, I know that when 
we talk about uh, child pornography and of course like intellectual property there's there's just one answer in some of the other um, problems that we face like daily in social media there's still like a lot to discuss and depending on the country where the people uh, who posted it or who read it it's going to be like maybe um, the possible can be like different all right what do you guys um, think yeah i mean i think i couldn't she was blipping out a little bit for me so i couldn't hear perfectly but was the question basically that there was or is there the possibility of this board leading to regional and local laws yeah i mean yeah Absolutely. Because basically if the board, the, the people who compromise the board decide to start telling Facebook, like, listen, you have to come up with some type of regionalization that these aren't feasible. Yes, you could get rid of that one global standard. That would be as Evelyn has written about weak form judicial review. That would be like a policy that kind of comes or, or comes out of a weak form of judicial review as a policy recommendation. Um, but I think that that's totally something that could be feasible. How that ends up being put into practice is really interesting. I'm kind of a fan of the wiki model of splitting the world by language and not by physical geographical geographic region. Um, and I think that that's maybe the more feasible long-term um, solution of like where, what type of Spanish you speak and like what type of, like, and like then allowing that to like define what kind of your, what you're um, doing. But I don't know, what do you think, Evelyn? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's definitely the hope is that it will lead to changed uh, community standards in some cases. If, it, if we go through all of this and have dedicated 18 months of our lives and there, there's no changes to Facebook's community standards, um, that, that will be uh, disappointing. And I think that potentially regional norms, because like, I think that that contextual analysis is just going to be so important. And one of the things that I'm really excited about that was part of your... Um, uh, your written question, I'm not sure if you said it, um, in, but it's a, it's a great question about how will the board um, bring in that contextual analysis. And I think there's two really important things here. First of all, it's going to be uh, hopefully a diverse body. We don't know yet, but hopefully it will have some representation. So it will have that function. But also one of the things that I'm most excited about in the bylaws is the board has um, uh, authority to go out and get reports or gather some sort of evidence or like get briefs, amicus briefs, uh, from experts in the relevant field so they can sort of do that kind of contextual analysis and ask people from uh, the relevant situations, like what does this speech mean in that kind of community and, and what, what are the norms that prevail here? So, I mean, yeah. the big thing too is that this opens Facebook's up to, like they've created this board and even if they've given them this limited power, when they decide to say something, if Facebook ignores it, it's, there is this public relations backlash that I believe it will face in a huge way. And, um, and I think that like, basically, um, you know, in answer to like, when I said before that, um, Jack Balkan was pushing me on the fact that like, well, like all of the board could just be pushing for decisions that are favorable to Facebook because they want to get their money re-upped in six years or three years, like whatever it is they, they do, which is like, which is true, but there's also like this, this thing, which is kind of like, if they don't look legitimate and the face, like if they don't, if they don't have, if they're just completely in Facebook's pocket and they look like they're in Facebook's pocket, like they're not going to be doing the job that Facebook wants them to be doing, frankly. 
And right. like, and so like, like that's like that they're going to not be serviceable to Facebook. Like that's actually like, they're not going to like it, you know? And so I know that's like a weird catch 22, but it's actually very, it's actually a, a really important point that like, yeah, they could be like not sufficiently, um, like in, they might not be sufficiently like, uh, in this kind of, they might not be sufficiently independent. They might be self-serving and they want to get paid again. But like at the other hand, if they're not hard on Facebook, no one's going to be listening to them in the first place. And they're not going to have any like reason to be existing. And Facebook's not going to keep wanting to throw two, like 150, $200 million their way every like three years. So All right. I, I want to, push on that because this seems to me to be uh, if Mark Zuckerberg learns from Donald Trump, he might analyze it this way. The first time I don't listen to the board and I just kind of let them whine. Yeah, that'll be a big news story. And the second time I do it, uh, that'll be a big news story. And maybe the first time I can six members of the board, that'll be a really big news story. And the second time I can three members- but Don't you think that at a certain point then the, the story becomes the board is a joke? It's just a joke. This isn't anything legitimate. This isn't like it's in the pocket of this private company. Um, I think if you, yes, I think if you do it too much, people start raising that question, which is exactly what's happening with, for example, inspectors general now, right? If you, if, if you insist on an inspector general of the spending of $2 trillion, and then you fire the independent guy who's going to run it, and you know, people will draw the conclusion that that oversight mechanism is less robust but uh, you still get some value for having it. And in fact, you can be pretty aggressive about kind of being the, uh, you know, keeping it in line while getting the benefits of the formal structure. Um, and so my, my question is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, why shouldn't he look at what Trump has done with the FBI and with these inspectors general and say, it's great, you know, I'll have them uh, formally there and I'll make sure the, the right people are there and I'll make sure to get rid of the wrong people if they turn out to be the wrong people. And it'll be great. It'll just, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll be a mechanism to, you know, put lipstick on a pig. So I, I mean, absolutely, definitely a concern. That is exactly how authoritarian regimes around the world use judicial review. It's like, why do these authoritarian regimes have courts? And that's exactly why they do it, so that they can say, oh, no, we definitely have independent judiciary. Um, but in, in actual fact, uh, it, it doesn't really change anything in substance. Um, I think the reason why I am still slightly optimistic, I don't think you are accounting for how much the status quo sucks for Facebook right now, um, which is like just they have been hammered for years now and they are hoping yes. that it will be a circuit breaker to change the story. So it's not as if without this board, they just carry on and they have good news story after although 
COVID potentially maybe has changed that. Maybe they've given them a circuit breaker that they didn't need. But I really- That is the thing that scares me, but yes. This is hopefully to just improve on the status quo because otherwise if they do disregard the board, that's fine. Okay, it's a failed experiment and we never hear from it again. But then we go back to what we have at the moment, which is just hammered day after day uh, front page of the New York Times all the time about what a terrible decision they're making. I think that that's completely correct. I think that that's completely correct. I think that this is like, they looked at this and they were like, listen, if we don't make this big change, we're going to just, we're just going to, this is just, we're never going to come back from this. And I do think that like, I do think that even if they, I even, I think if they get, they like, they get hammered like five, six, seven times, like people are going to be absolutely furious that they decide to refund this board, if they're sorry, if they get hammered, meaning like they hammer the board, they don't pay attention to the board, they ignore it or whatever. Um, and they decide to refund it in six years. People are going to be like, this is lipstick on a pig. This is just like them throwing money at some type of like project to try to like save the reputation that doesn't actually do anything. Um, I don't know. I have figured out what the analogy is. Oh, tell me, please. It is not, <laughs> it is not a court. It is another private company, not morally comparable to Facebook, uh, but another private company that faced a catastrophic PR problem as a result of a lack of oversight and went to eventually flipped its opposition to the creation of regulatory oversight, embraced regulatory oversight and got a federal regulator got legislation to uh, teamed up with its foes in activist foes to get Congress to pass an oversight mechanism for it. And that is Philip Morris, the tobacco it was company. Just, I was like, it's either oil or tobacco. No, it's, it's like, <laughs> but, but interestingly, it's only Altria, Philip Morris. It's not the other tobacco companies. And one of the really interesting cynical features of what Philip, Philip Morris did, which I have to say I admire a lot, I think it's a, uh, was a stroke of business genius, was to say, all right, we're the market leader, we're 50% of the market. If we have a, a tight regulatory regime, that'll be a pain in the ass for us, but it'll really inhibit competition. And, you know, and so, they created in the FDA um, a genuine, it's a genuinely serious regulatory regime. Um, they live under it relatively comfortably. Uh, RJR does not live under it as comfortably. And so it's, it turns out to be, and I think very few people stopped smoking as a result of that regime. And so I think there's a, um, you know, now I don't wanna compare Facebook to Philip Morris because Facebook, whatever its faults, uh, connects people and allows people to share information. It doesn't poison them and, and sentence them to early death. Um, but uh, I do think some of what you guys are talking about is roughly akin to the embrace of a regulatory environment, albeit in this case, a self-imposed regulatory environment. So I couldn't agree more. And I think Facebook would love the Philip Morris model 
Um, and like Mark Zuckerberg has literally written on in the New York in the Washington Post begging for regulation because I think they just want to not have to make these decisions themselves anymore. The problem is the difference between Philip Morris and Facebook is that it's speech and the um, the limits of government regulation are much more serious. And as Kate was saying before, the First Amendment means that it can't touch the government can't touch a lot of this stuff. And, and I was so just going to of that relationship is there. And so instead of outsourcing it to the government, uh, it's outsourcing it to this other body, but it's exactly the same kind of idea, yeah. And the and the head the head of the governance team at Facebook uh, in his previous capacity had been working with BP to basically work on like oversight of, of, of he, did, he did a similar thing for British Petroleum following their entire disaster in like in in the Gulf. And this is exactly, I mean, this is the, this is the background that he's coming from. This is like, That's I mean, he's also got a, he's also got a MBA JD from Stanford. Like, so he's like not a dummy in terms of like knowing the business, having like been schooled in like the business and legal potential of these, of these various things. But this is, this is a, I think this is the identifying this type of structure is actually, I think very, very, um, I think very, uh, very key to understanding what they're doing. But it, Ben, it speaks to kind of like a purpose-driven model versus like how it's procedurally effective in the system of governance that it runs under. And I would say as a system, it is very, it looks a lot like like an, like a, an appeals model um, for That's Interesting. So uh we have uh um Noah uh, come do you Sorry? see well, and Noah Noah did everyone get Noah's email no, I no, have no, not gotten Noah's Noah email CV is, is the top line has now been settled it's true I mean Noah uh has you have squandered another hour watching in lieu of fun um but Noah Feldman has used this hour to create a huge distinction in his life. We are 20 episodes into In Lieu of Fun and only one person has ever stood us up. Congratulations, Noah what, Feldman. The you are the first. You were the first. There's a variable. You see, he's like, she's like, I feel bad. He's like, he's like messaging me and I feel like, he's like, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. I think he's, I think like, I think people are, I think there's, uh, I think people are busy right now and various, I think that we can all identify the fact that there have been like a few days where you've also, God, I have had a few moments where I just like put down my phone and I walk out the door and I just like do not want to be connected to anything for like there, two hours. But for the grace of God, go we all, which is yes. why we are razzing Noah Feldman about yes, this. We're, we're just razzing. actually angry at him. All right. Um, so listen, thank you, Evelyn, uh, for joining us. Evelyn, and you're going to be back soon. You're going to be back on like Thursday. Yeah, maybe. I, I might yeah, have to. I know. We have to figure it out. Um, and we will, uh, uh, we will be back tomorrow, which is Tuesday. Who do we have tomorrow, Kate? We have Jillian York from EFF and, uh, and Sarah T. Roberts from UCLA, uh, both who are going to talk to us kind of about what's, they're both fun ladies and it's going to be, I think they're both very excited that there's drinking a lot on the show. So I think that it should be a very raucous and fun conversation about online speech and uh, and tech platforms and yeah, it should be interesting. All right. Um, so in the meantime, uh, you know, we have the Maggie Feldman Pilch uh, honorary song of the day. 
was trying to think about what the- It's her birthday. It is Maggie's birthday. And uh, partly for that reason, we had to go the Mozart route. Um, and, you know, all these uh, scenes of people in Italy singing uh, arias and choruses from their balconies uh, have moved me a lot. But actually the coolest, like it, it reverses the image that I think is really cool, which is somebody coming by and trying to summon you from the street to your window because, you know, social distancing, but you can still like see each other from a distance. And then and so you have to like decide how much you want that can of beans or how much you want to throw it at them. <laughs> exactly. And so I was thinking, what are the songs, you know, the sort of uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? With, from the calling somebody to the window. And I thought of, I actually know the perfect uh, song of calling somebody to a window, which is uh, from the second act of Don Giovanni. Uh, and you have to, you have to uh, uh, put aside that it's, uh, of course, Don Juan trying to summon somebody uh, to the window uh, for, uh, uh, shall we say, immoral purposes. Um, but, uh, uh, and it is as far as I know- <laughs> A good way to only, leave a content moderation discussion, Ben. Yeah, the only um, uh, uh, thing in all of uh, Mozart opera that is scored for mandolin. Um, and so um, here it is, uh, whoops, uh, yeah, let's- Also, Evelyn, um, thank you so much for being on and we'll hopefully see you again soon. And here is to take out uh, Bryn Terfel singing uh, De Vieni a la Finestra. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 